Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host Shabir Ahmed. In the previous episode, we discussed corruption trends across the extractive sector decision chain. We also cited a few examples from different countries where various forms of these corruption trends have been manifested. We know what tools are needed to tackle corruption in the extractive sector. And we have seen how many resource-rich countries have successfully managed to leverage these tools in order to minimize corruption. In this episode, we will focus on good practices in mitigating corruption risks in the extractive sector. In light of the various corruption risks, good governance of the extractive sector is essential for the successful development of countries with large natural resource endowments. There are many examples of good practice from developed and emerging economies that have helped mitigate the risks of corruption along the extractive value chain. This demonstrates that the so-called resource curse is not inevitable. Importantly, research also shows that many innovative practices also arise directly in developing countries, although challenges in implementation still exist. Prompted by these developments, there emerged a number of international initiatives that sought to mitigate the negative impacts of natural resource wealth. We'll provide a quick mapping of these efforts and then focus on the programs that advanced transparency. A number of initiatives are multilateral or run by multilateral institutions. The most prominent is Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative or the EITI, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later in this episode. But there are a few others as well. The African Union and the UN Economic Commission for Africa came together to create the Africa Mining Vision. The Africa Mining Vision was adopted by heads of state at the February 2009 African Union Summit following the October 2008 meeting of African ministers responsible for mineral resources development. It is Africa's own response to tackling the paradox of great mineral wealth existing side by side with pervasive poverty. The Africa mining vision is holistic. It advocates thinking outside the mining box. Accordingly, it's not just a question of improving mining regimes by making sure that tax revenues from mining are optimized and that the income is well spent although that is clearly important rather it's a question of integrating mining much better into development policies at local national and regional levels the world bank has launched an online extractive industry source book the central premise of this source book is that good technical knowledge can better inform political economic and social choices with respect to sector development and the related risks and opportunities the guidance provided by the source book assumes a broad set of overarching principles all centered on good governance and directed at achieving positive and broadly based sustainable development outcomes the imf has published a guide to resource revenue transparency and the international finance corporation talks about extractives explicitly in its performance standards on environmental and social sustainability 
which apply to all the projects that the IFC finances. Other multilateral initiatives are not specific to the extractive sector, but they still have an impact. The Open Government Partnership has a working group on natural resources and a number of participating countries have chosen to include extractives-related issues in their commitments. For example, Colombia included a commitment to greater openness in how they manage their mining royalties in their uh, Open Governance Partnership Action Plan. Also relevant is the OECD's G20 Inclusive Framework on Base Erosion and Profit Sharing, also known as BEPS, which aims to give governments tools to combat tax avoidance, specifically to combat the strategies used by companies to shift income to low or no tax jurisdictions. The OECD also holds regular policy dialogues on natural resource-based development, which convenes experts and stakeholders to address issues such as corruption risks, contract negotiation, revenue management, and local content and infrastructure. The G7 and G8 has also publicly supported extractive industry uh, transparency for over a decade, and the issue often features within the anti-corruption programs, including the efforts to tackle the issue of secret corporations. At the El Mao Summit, the Connex in initiative of the G7 received clear political support. Given the right enabling environment, the income developing countries generate from the extractive industries can make a huge contribution to reducing poverty. The aim of the initiative, which was launched in 2014, is therefore to provide even better and more targeted advice to developing countries that have vast extractive resources. Specifically, the initiative is intended to improve the advice available to developing countries engaged in complex contract negotiations, especially in the extractive sector. Moving over to the civil society side, several NGOs came together in 2002 to create what is known as the Publish What You Pay initiative. Since then, Publish What You Pay has grown into a global coalition of over 800 members. Alongside many national NGOs, a few international NGOs were created to deal just with the resource governance issues, such as Global Witness and Revenue Watch. A number of long-standing NGOs like Oxfam and Transparency International have chosen to devote a lot of their resources to extractive sector issues. In 2010, the Natural Resource Charter was launched. Developed by a group of international independent experts, the Charter offers guidance on the key decisions that governments face when managing natural resources. In 2013, the Natural Resource Charter and Revenue Watch merged to form the Natural Resource Governance Institute. There's a whole other set of initiatives that target the private sector. Some of them, like the International Council on Mining, and metals, also known as the ICMM or the World Bank Council, have mining companies as their members. Both of these bodies set standards that all of their members choose to abide by. Several other initiatives push companies to raise their standards of supply chain due diligence. Most of these aim to decrease the trade in conflict minerals. 
The OECD produces extensive guidance on this topic. In 2017, the EU passed regulations that required EU companies beginning in 2021 to follow those OECD guidance when importing tin, tantalum, tungsten and coal from countries affected by conflict or at high risk of human rights abuses. Specific to diamonds, the Kimberley process is a supply chain certification scheme that includes roughly 54 participants who mine over 99% of the world's rough diamonds. A number of other voluntary initiatives are relevant because lots of oil and mining companies choose to participate in them. These include corporate social responsibility standards and reporting standards such as the UN Global Compact, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, and the Global Reporting Initiative, which addresses sustainability issues. On the investor side, 90 financial institutions in 37 countries have adopted the Equator Principles, which spell out good practices that investors should follow to reduce social and environmental risk. There's also something called the Santiago Principles, which is for sovereign wealth funds. And over 30 sovereign wealth funds have signed up to abide by these principles. Many of these funds contain mostly oil revenues. The Santiago Principles mostly addresses things like transparency, accountability, and oversight mechanisms that sovereign wealth funds should adopt. So that's a brief overview of what's out there. Although there are a number of other projects and, and initiatives that were not mentioned, and an ever-growing number of country-based and regional initiatives. Let us spend a little bit more time talking about transparency, because a number of different approaches have arisen, and they have some important differences. First, let's look at the EITI. The EITI is voluntary and it's multi-stakeholder. So when a government chooses to join the EITI, it basically agrees to do two things. Firstly, it agrees to disclose a certain set of information, and secondly, it agrees to set up a multi-stakeholder body to oversee the reporting process that has representatives from government, civil society, and the private sector. So, so far, more than 52 countries from around the world have signed up to implement the EITI. So, if you're a company that operates in one of those 52 countries, you have to disclose certain information through a countrywide reporting process. For example, if you're a Canadian company that's working in Nigeria, you'll have to submit information to the Nigerian EITI, even though Canada itself is not a member. In its early years, the EITI reports only included a reconciliation of payment data. Companies disclose how much they paid to governments, and governments disclose how much they received from the companies. And an independent administrator was hired to compare the two sets of figures. But this kind of transparency is too narrow. So in 2013, the EITI expanded its reporting requirements. The payment reconciliation is still required, but companies 
also provide other important information such as a registry of which companies hold licenses, financial data from the state-owned companies, what share of extractive revenues go to sub-national governments as well as others. As a result, EITI reports have grown much more useful and informative over the years. In 2016, the EITI standard was expanded again to require reporting on beneficial owners of the companies that hold exploration and production licenses. This is a key step to making corruption more difficult. The EITI also recently adopted a civil society protocol in response to the repression and and intimidation faced by civil society in several of its implementing countries. Because the EITI is a voluntary measure, lots of oil and mineral-rich countries choose not to participate, including some places with very severe corruption and resource governance issues. This is why mandatory reporting requirements by home countries are so important, because they can help fill that gap. As of 2016, companies that are based in the EU, Norway, and Canada or listed on the stock exchanges in those countries are required by law to report annually on the payments that they make to foreign governments. So royalties, taxes, fees, and breakdown of that information at a project-by-project level. This new payment data represents an exciting resource of new information that's starting to be used more widely. While many companies vigorously resisted these new rules, they're now complying. And we haven't heard of any accounts yet that has damaged their commercial well-being. However, there remains a lot to be done. While the idea of transparency has many allies, on its own, it is insufficient for increased accountability. In practice, a lot of information is not being disclosed and secrecy still remains the norm, more often than not. I hope that you will join me on the next episode where we will focus on the key areas that must be transparent in resource-rich countries. Thank you very much for your time.